When Stephen King calls your trilogy creepy and fascinating, you know you're onto a winner. As the third and final part of the Southern Reach trilogy is released today, Tom Killingback leads the charge as he and Tara Alazawi talk to the author, the inimitable and wholly fascinating Jeff Vandermeer. We hope you enjoy this wonderfully uncanny roundtable discussion on the real horrors of middle management and what happens when you write on leaves. No mice were harmed in the making of this podcast. Hi there and welcome to the Fourth Estate podcast. Um, who Today we're featuring Jeff Vandermeer, author of the Southern Reach trilogy. Um, the latest volume, uh, Acceptance, is coming out very soon. Um, and we'll be talking to him about his novels. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, my first question, I guess, was um, about the structure of the Southern Reach trilogy, and it's quite a unique structure. Um, it is a trilogy, and we've had a lot of trilogies <laughs> in the literary world recently, but this one's quite unique in terms of its perspectives. You, um, For example, you take in Annihilation, you have a sort of first-person narration. Um, in, in Authority, the second volume, you take a third-person standpoint, and then Acceptance, you actually refer to the uh, reader as you quite frequently and have another third person perspective. so lots of different um, yeah takes on the on on the different novels you're not sort of having a consistent viewpoint well it's it's funny because it wasn't meant to be a trilogy it's kind of a collapsed quartet okay um, and basically authority the second novel ate a lot of the story that was going to be also spread out across the fourth book which is actually a really good sign uh, it's usually a good sign when books collapse a little bit yeah. um, and it means you're not padding them out unnecessarily the structure was meant to basically be kind of like a, a, a continually uh, a lens continually opening wider and wider, and so in Annihilation you don't know anything more than the people on the expedition yeah. do about what they're getting into, what Area X is, and all of that, and that kind of heightens the tension there because just like the expedition members, you have to kind of figure out what's going on as they are, and then in Authority it opens up into basically telling you more about the Southern Reach, the agency that's actually. Um, investigating Area X. And what I wanted to do there was uh, kind of convey a little bit of <laughs> the weird workplace experiences that I have had before I became a full-time writer. I have worked in some places that I would describe as Lord of the Flies with middle management. And, um, and so, you know, there's some very bizarre things that happen in authority that actually have happened to me. Like, um, there's a scene where Control, the main character, actually opens a desk drawer and there's a dead plant, uh, a living plant and a dead mouse in the drawer. And I did actually start work at a place where I inherited someone's office and opened a drawer and there was a dead mouse and a dead plant um, in the drawer. <laughs> so uh, sometimes people will, will say, oh, wow, that's, that's really weird in authority. What happened? I'm like, that, that, actually, that actually happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so it's a widening lens. And then in acceptance, it really widens even further. And the year you're talking about is using second person for the character of the, of the um, former director. And one thing I find, uh, and there's multiple viewpoint characters, so you have uh, some first person narration and some third person, and, and I always find annoying when a writer does like several first person points of view in the same book. It's very hard to differentiate. Yeah. Um, and third person, you can get away with it, but um, there is an immediacy to, um, to using second person for the former director that I liked, also because her sections are set in a particular part of the past that's actually alive, that actually impacts what's happening in the foreground of the other books. And the other thing about the structure is um, the structure of the third book is more or less kind of like a wagon wheel. <laughs> There's probably a more graceful term for that, maybe a sundial. But basically, 
there's a kind of a hidden center to it that everything radiates out from. And when you get to the middle of the book, there's kind of like an aha moment of, oh, this, you know, something that you didn't expect, but you were hoping, I think, readers were hoping since Annihilation uh, comes back into the narrative. Um, So you can't really structure a novel like a wagon wheel, but that's kind of the way I feel, that there's a center to it from which everything else radiates out, like maybe the rays of the sun or something. I don't know. Maybe that's a better analogy, but... um, but basically, yeah, um, uh, the structure is fairly unique. And uh, did you, when you when you started writing, did you sort of consciously set out to disrupt the, trili- the sort of standard <laughs> trilogy format, or did it come out of the initial writing of Annihilation? Well, I was quite distraught that it was a collapsed quartet because I've railed against uh, uh, trilogies for yeah, quite some exactly. time. So, I thought it was quite um, because you know they could be just kind of this commercial cynical thing, yeah. and so and so how ironic that that after railing against them for years, I was suddenly writing another one. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, yeah, um, it, it's uh, I had a when I was halfway through Annihilation, I had kind of like a general idea of the structure of the overall story arc, but not like the street-level yeah. view of all three books. Uh, and then also with Acceptance, I knew that I wanted to avoid um, a fallacy that you often see in trilogies, <laughs> which is that suddenly some character suddenly realizes what's going on, um, mm. and the author does all of this kind of hand-waving and stage business to get you to believe that there's some reason why this person would suddenly know all of this stuff. Uh, and I wanted to avoid that. So basically, in acceptance, the reader gets to piece together what's happened um, in a way similar to Annihilation, but with more information uh, from the different character points of view. No, ca- no one character in the series ever knows the full story, so to speak. Uh, and, and that, to me, allowed, allowed me to relax into these scenes and, and just follow the characters and be true to them and not worry so much about where information is going to be released um, into the narrative. So. so with the with the writing process, were you writing the three books sort of consecutively or were you doing it all at the same time bits and bits and bobs sort of coming together by the time I had finished Annihilation I had about 30,000 words of fragments for authority and and what I tend to do is um, is let the let the narrative kind of uh, evolve naturally and what that means is basically (laughs) when I go hiking I take notes Uh, when I'm hiking when I'm in places like uh, my wife's synagogue where I don't understand what anyone is saying (laughs) I tend to I tend to (laughs) be to uh, perversely want to write. Um, and yeah. Of course, in synagogue, you can't actually write when you're in the pews. It's not allowed, so I have to either sneak into the bathroom or outside, um, which is also probably, probably fairly peculiar to the, the synagogue members that I kept ducking outside all the time. But um, but getting back to the point, um, basically, Annihilation uh, uh, Authority c- uh, came about as a, a series of a pile of uh, fragments uh, written on pieces of paper, scraps of paper, and on leaves, um, because when I was hiking, I was running out of paper, and so I had to find leaves to write on. What were you actually, using to write on leaves? There's, there's some leaves that are actually better than others for writing on, as you might imagine. I discovered this after writing on some leaves the first time, putting them in my pocket, and then by the time I got the back, I couldn't read what was on <laughs> So there are some smaller leaves that, are, that, that have the right consistency. Okay. <laughs> Your notebooks but, are just full of old leaves. <coughs> Right. So, so yeah. So, and actually, there's a a a Southern Reach midden, which I can send you a picture of. Which Mm. I got superstitious when I had these first layers of sedimentary layer of like notes and stuff. Um, And so I just let it grow. 
And so there is actually a midden in my office that I'm going to clear when I get back that's just basically every draft of all three books. Oh yeah. Kind of like the journal entries in the lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> Very much method writing. <laughs> and, then, and then also in authority, uh, the c- control mentions finding some notes written on leaves by the former director. Um, so basically anything that happened was fodder yeah. for the books if it made sense. And if you're writing the right kind of book, um, the world just infiltrates it that way. Um, there's other things in there, like there's a scene where Control <laughs> finds a squashed mosquito in the inside of his windshield and doesn't remember having swatted it and gets all paranoid about it. And maybe the secret mm-hmm. agency running things is, is, has been in his car. And that actually happened to me uh, while writing Authority, is that I saw the squash mosquito. I was like, I don't remember doing that. Um, well, on the inside of the glass. On the inside of the glass. Yeah. Um, and, and so even the most minute detail sometimes <laughs> in the heightened writing process gets uh, becomes mulch for, for fiction. Yeah. It sounds like your writing was making you, you paranoid as well. Was it was. And it, it, it was. And for Authority, I was pretty much uh, in the house 24-7. Like, like I, I walked outside at one point and saw that I had a flat tire, and I was like, good. Now I can't leave the house for good uh, because I have to finish this book. Um, so by the end of Authority, I was actually uh, in in a kind of state a little similar to Control, and I was just like channeling that. Mm. Um, especially because when you write at home uh, continually, and you and you're used to going to coffee shops, you notice things around your house that are probably not unusual, mm. but 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 you don't know if they're unusual, yeah. like the van that suddenly outside of, you know, at the time when you're normally in the coffee shop, there's, oh, there's a van parked outside our house. Mm. Well, it's just the guy from across the street, but you don't know that. Yeah. Um, for a time, for a week, there was a, a hearse, actually, parked across <laughs> from our house. Um, Your friend was playing tricks on you. I'm sure it's... Right. There was, and then another time, there was what looked like a mannequin on the top of somebody's roof, like, across the street. Mm-hmm. So, like, all this stuff just kind of, you know... And I just let it kind of... Yeah. Uh, uh, I let myself become more sensitive to it specifically because I wanted to channel it uh, for the books. So. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting that you're saying like it you sort of drew from various things and it was all coming together as one and then was sort of funneled into these different books. How like the uh, the landscapes are so completely different, like Annihilation has this amazing sense of the uncanny in nature yeah. and then Authority has this intense sense of the uncanny in a really sterilised office environment. Yeah. And um, I just wonder how, when you were writing the books, you sort of got into the, the mode of depicting those landscapes. Like, did you do them really separately? And did you do, sort of like, I'm going to go into Annihilation, I'm going to commune with nature and get that sense of it? I think it really comes out through the characters. I always think of setting as being a reflection of character, because even in a third-person narrative, what you're getting are the details, really, if you're close in, that the character would see and not the details that they wouldn't. So Control is surrounded by a lot of nature, but he doesn't know how it works the way the biologist does, so he's not going to notice the same kinds of things. Uh, and so what he notices more are things to do with the small town south, which is yeah. kind of transformed in, in these books. And, and in Authority, for example, you know, everything in there that's not quote-unquote fantastical or, or uncanny is not, it, there's no received details in there. It's everything is something that I've observed firsthand. Like for one day job, I had to visit every health department in the state of Florida over a period of, and there's like 64 counties, um, over a period of nine months. And they're always like in the, the most like backwater towns you can imagine. And you drive there and you just keep driving around for like nine months to these different places. And so a lot of the small town south stuff that's in there is from yeah. direct detail, even some of the more absurd details. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the sense of the Southern Reach building is very much from you know, being in government buildings built in the 70s mm-hmm. and then combining that with like Soviet brutalist architecture. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of the jokes uh, in there is that control is forever going down corridors, but never getting where he yeah. needs to go. So I cut away, <laughs> and then you learn later what happened when he got to the actual actual meeting, which I I find kind of funny. Um, but your your landscapes in Annihilation were quite personal as well, and they they were all sort of were they where you grew up or uh, places you've hiked or. Well, it's a, com it's a combination. Um, uh, Annihilation, most of that setting is uh, St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge uh, in North Florida, okay. uh, which is one of the most pristine and uh, kind of remote wilderness areas left in Florida and uh, transitions uh, from this amazing pine forest to, to swamp and then uh, to marsh flats in the sea. And uh, this 14-mile trail is pretty much the, the, the habitat that you see in Annihilation. But there are other things mixed in. Like there's a point where she sees the starfish uh, in a pool, and that's a combination of two different things. One being in British Columbia uh, on Vancouver Island, and there's this remote place called uh, Botany or Botanical Bay uh, that you drive out to, and it's like the most horrific drive you've ever had in your life up and down mountains and stuff to get there, and you feel like you're going to die, especially if it's in the fog and rain. Um, and then you get there, and there's this amazing tidal pool system. Uh, so it's a combination of that, and then also uh, when I lived in Fiji as a child, there was a moment, a very absurd but also kind of strangely beautiful moment when I was out on a reef at night with my parents, and I somehow got separated from them, and either their flashlight stopped working or something, and I didn't know which way was the shore, which way was the sea, and I came upon this, this amazing uh, crown of thorns, phosphorescent, luminescent starfish in this tidal pool. Uh, and I did transform that for Annihilation because yeah. it was actually one of the moments from my childhood that I most, most remember. Do you feel like these novels are, are more personal? I know all novels are personal, but do you feel like you use more personal experience or in, in these novels pr more than your previous ones? It's a different kind. Um, in the previous ones, because I had no set place growing up, my parents were in the Peace Corps moved around a lot. They took uh, nine months uh, after our stint in Fiji to travel around the world when I was eight or nine. Uh, so my first series set in an imaginary world was to try to reconcile all the different places because I didn't have yeah. one place I could call home. Here, having been in Florida for now 20 years, I can relax into a setting that's personal in a different way. Um, I feel a real intense uh, connection to the land landscapes there. Um, you know, I've traveled around the South quite a bit, and so they are they're very they are very personal in the details, and that's why it's difficult when when people say oh, this looks like it was influenced by such and such yeah. book or whatever. It's like, well, really, they're kind of like natural, you know, amateur naturalist diaries yeah. <laughs> in fictional form in addition to whatever else they are. Do you feel um, that's quite a comforting thing, having a sort of territory like, as a writer, like, you know, Stephen King with Maine? Right, right. Or, you know, like these people who eke out a territory or yeah. like James Lee Burke with Louisiana or something like that. I, like, yeah. I, I can't say that it's, I, I have to say that, Absolutely. I mean, you relax into it. Annihilation, there wasn't a single detail I had to research. Yeah. Authority, there really wasn't either. The only thing I did is take an extra trip to the coast of California for the last section so I could make sure I had the right tactile experience. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, I think it does make a difference. Um, there's something that comes out through the text that, that definitely is more personal. So. Do you, uh, when I was reading Annihilation especially, I felt um, that those natural elements and the biologists sort of interaction with her environment mm -hmm. and obviously the fact that the characters aren't named right. rather they're named but then right. as their roles right. rather right. than um, with human names made nature feel like quite an oppressive mm. um, force and you sort of throughout the trilogy I thought that humans there's a sort of cosmic um, indifference to mm -hmm. all the human characters mm -hmm. that was 
quite r- remarkable, really, because um, especially in Annihilation, it's it's you don't see characters who seem so um, swamped by their yeah. environment, which was essentially a benign environment. And it was beautifully depicted, and it was almost like a you can see your enthusiasm for hiking coming through, but then it well, was twisted. Well, the joke is that if you look at these novels, um, there are also novels about wildlife. Um, just kind of going along its merry way, yeah. having fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and that people are seeing these as horror novels. <laughs> and, and, and really it depends, I guess, on your relationship to nature, um, because okay. uh, there are hikers from North Florida who have, who understand the, the part that is the horrific part, which is when you go through the black swamp area and you're by yourself, there's a stillness that just seems watchful and your reptile brain just gets really freaked out. Mm. Um, but I think also these books are about the fact that we need to have a different kind of relationship with nature than either steward or despoiler um, uh, because uh, our own survival kind of depends on it uh, and that's really kind of the question that these books are taking on and what I find really kind of fascinating is so few reviewers have touched on the eco- ecological aspects of these mm. novels and I, I feel like maybe the subtext is too subtextual or something I mean there's nobody giving grand speeches about it or anything it's just they're encountering this thing that seems to some degree benign for the world except yeah. when human beings come in contact with it. Exactly. I think that was something that um, really struck me was, um, yeah, the human the human influence me feels like an intrusion into these places and I was almost almost not rooting for them to, to survive. <laughs> I, I liked the uh, the pristineness of this wilderness, you know, which probably wasn't your intention. But no, it I don't know. makes me a terrible old curmudgeon in a way. To, to <laughs> but, but I do agree with Alan Wiseman, in, who in his books says that we need to be able to imagine the world without humankind in it to keep living in it, which is to say we have to mm. see what is what is our place, because right now, quite to, to be serious for, for a moment, um, if you were to remove human beings from the ecosystem, the world would be a much better place. So we have to really grapple with that and and not turn away from that and not be distracted from it. Um, It's actually a good question to grapple with. It's a good question to face head on uh, because we're going to have to face it head on at some point anyway. So we might as well do it now. And I quite liked um, as well how I suppose the most human structures in Area X, so the topographical anomaly (laughs) and the lighthouse, those are the areas that or the things that these expeditions keep gravitating towards. And yet, almost the magic seems to happen in the hinterland, you know, between those spaces. Right, it's and they don't notice it because they're they so mm. used to the landmarks right. being meaning something, right? Exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah. So they're imbuing a meaning which you're then ca- quite casually subverting, and I, I yeah. really enjoyed that tension between. Yeah, it's uh, like moss to a flame, to use a cliche, but it's like you know, they keep going, they keep seeing the wrong things they're in a way. And they're staking their, this is, I know this, so this is mine. Right. And as you say, yeah. it's that human desire to kind of yeah. imprint meaning upon an unknowable landscape. And to some degree, we have to, we have to think about relinquishing control to some degree yeah. uh, going forward. Um, where should we go next? Just having a look. Um, yeah, so at Fourth Estate, um, we've recently reissued some of J.G. Ballard's mm-hmm. novels, um, two of which I thought had echoes of your work, which were the, the Drowned World and the Crystal World, which both sort of represent these these almost beautiful mm-hmm. landscapes, um, post-human landscapes, yeah. um, one of which with the Drowned World is very uh, plausible almost, mm-hmm. sci- sort of science fiction landscape and then the crystal world, which is very implausible. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, um, yes, what, uh, aside from uh, your personal experiences, what 
uh, influenced you, I guess, in those in creating those landscapes. Well, he is a good a good example because I've studied him very closely in 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 one respect specifically, which is that he is amazing at compressing or expanding space and time, and kind of allowing that to kind of blossom in your head. Um, he's what they call kind of uh, a writer who's who's mind blowing. I mean, he makes you kind of he immerses you and he makes you. See his vision of the world, um, and uh, he kind of takes no prisoners on it. And with things like um, Concrete Island, I yeah. suppose he's doing a similar thing to those spaces people don't really notice. Mm -hmm. Like people don't really think of the office as a strange or uncanny environment. <laughs> and Ballard, I think, yeah, there's something definitely found that. Well, I mean, that's that's why I find, and I suppose I shouldn't say that I find my own book funny. I'm not allowed <laughs> to have an opinion on it, but I find authority darkly funny. Yeah, because I thought it funny. There are a lot of ritualistic things we do that we don't think about every day that are very odd, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, uh, definitely uh, all those new wave writers, I think that was uh, one of the high watermarks for science fiction and fantasy because of the intellectual rigor yeah. uh, matched with the, the amazing writing ability. Uh, and uh, I think it's still having an effect. Do you think with the humor of authority that the, the books are sort of tonally quite quite diverse because wh when I read Annihilation I, it sort of I read it quite late at night mm -hmm. I was sort of cre it was creeping up on me and I had that unknowable sense w w of, of something watching you it was the you know w something in the reeds yeah. um, and then authority uh, it did make me laugh and smirk which, yeah. is, which is quite unexpected <laughs> considering the, f the first volume I was like what <laughs> well I mean I mean uh, the, the books that I like and obviously these are three separate books <coughs> very different but I mean I like books like Catch-22 and others that, that make you laugh and make you kind of cry yeah. at the same time <laughs> um, but I have to also say that uh, I remember having a conversation with my editor about Annihilation because he wasn't sure he thought some of the dialogue was a little awkward and <laughs> I said well the dialogue's awkward on purpose because I think when people encounter something they don't know what it is and they're also being kind of impacted by an outside force that's what happens things begin yeah. to degrade a bit um, and so I actually find some of their conversations about what they're gonna do on a very darkly level a little bit funny mm. because if you really if you were actually just looking at the transcript of what they're saying it's kind of ridiculous mm. it's a tower it's a tunnel it's a tower. Yeah. I mean, you know but you get into a situation and those are the kinds of things that you say and and, and um, uh, and, and so they are di very different tonally, um, but there are little traces uh, here and there in Annihilation. Yeah. I would say Acceptance is, is probably uh, the most, oddly enough, I feel it's the most straightforward of the books, and, and the humor really comes through just in the relationship between the lighthouse keeper and, and this little girl who keeps coming around the, the lighthouse. Uh, the um, with the, the packaging of the books, we've said, we've said um, you know, the ecology themes maybe haven't been picked up by reviewers as much mm -hmm. as you would have expected. Yeah. Um, the, the books have had some fantastic jackets, both yes. in America, here, and in Spain. Mm -hmm. I saw some wonderful ones. Were you really happy with those? It's really funny because I usually have uh, cover control on all my books, and I've had to exercise it quite frequently. And on this series, in all cases, I haven't had to, I mean, I'm just like, that looks great. That's great. <laughs> that looks great. That's amazing. Because um, I, I do uh, come from a publishing background and have been kind of an art director for my own imprint, and so mm -hmm. I, I'm fairly and also very visual, so I'm very picky about that. But no, they've been absolutely beautiful. The, there's a Hungarian edition that cracks me up because they did a uh, cutout. So there's a cutout of a rabbit, 
and then a blank white page beneath it, but they left the eye on the white page. So when you turn the page onto the first page, the cover, there's just an eye, <laughs> just a little eye, oh, <laughs> just weird. floating. Doesn't really make any commercial sense. No. It's kind of brilliant in a kind of weird, surreal way. But, Quite um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard for me to choose a favorite. I, I think that the, the Fourth Estate ones and the FSG ones, because they're so different, appeal to me a lot, and mm. then the Spanish ones as well. Did you know about the Spanish ones before you saw them? Did you sign them off or anything? No. Uh, oh, actually, yes. They did. Yeah. They did. They did show them to me uh, at a certain point. And what I love about them is they're very surreal looking. But the artist took uh, existing uh, natural uh, natural history drawings of yeah, owl and whatnot, and then transformed them. So that also made sense. Yeah. Uh, thematically. Absolutely. Was, um, it, was it hard to um, to stop writing these novels and to turn your attention elsewhere? <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly hard for me to stop thinking about them. It was really a really intense uh, writing period. Um, I remember, and I can say this because I think that I, they turned out exactly the way I wanted them to, but in acceptance, there was one point where it was like my brain just wouldn't move and the deadline was coming and there was one scene left to write. Mm. And it's the scene where uh, the lighthouse keeper has this kind of mystical experience and then a conversation, his last conversation with the little girl. And uh, I had this book uh, that I had bought called The Book of Miracles which is all of these old uh, drawings and paintings from like the 15th century of unexplained phenomena, stuff that we mostly know about now, mm -hmm. but it was basically non-scientists encountering natural phenomena and trying to explain it, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting to look at in context of these books. And so at one point, uh, I just simply, I had nothing left in me at all. And I just pointed to a picture of a comet and I said, this is gonna be this scene. I just started describing the comet, and then luckily the scene developed from it. Mm. Um, but that's how all in I was at the end. Um, <laughs> and I think it actually helped. I helped The mental state I was in for acceptance really helped acceptance, um, because I just transferred those emotions to the end of the book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, it was difficult to not be writing these books. And how, Yeah, how, how long was the writing process? I hesitate to tell you, because okay. usually it'll take me years to finish a book, but I also haven't usually had the concentrated time. So I had mm. more man hours than ever before, but over a shorter yeah. period of months. Uh, so authority, I pretty much wrote in about four months, and acceptance I wrote about in about six. But again, that was with me yeah. doing nothing but doing, but writing that 24-7, just getting up and... Did you feel like a lot of the elements in these books sort of came from the unconscious, and you didn't sort of, they sort of arose from the from the murk of inspiration, and you didn't question them, like, like things like that comment? Yeah. You have to be careful with that, especially for me, where I'm a combination of a very um, technical writer, but also a very immersive writer. So mm -hmm. I, I very much believe in channeling the subconscious, and then I'm very merciless in the revision process in a very mechanical way, because I think that's really important. Uh, so, so there's things you challenge and things you don't. There are things from Annihilation I left in, trusting that they would make sense uh, by the time I started Authority. and. Um, one thing that was really great uh, with FSG in the U.S. is they let me uh, continue to edit up until uh, well past the point you usually do. And so got to the point where there were, are no continuity errors and annihilation because of something that happened in authority and stuff like that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, the, the annihilation came out of a dream. It came out of a dream of walking down into a tunnel and seeing living words on the wall and eventually realizing they were getting fresher and fresher and that eventually I was going to see what was writing them and I didn't want to for a couple of reasons. Mm. Uh, it was one of those dreams where you don't know you're dreaming mm. and it was very tactile and disturbing and I knew if I turned the corner and saw it I probably wouldn't write the story. And then mm. I woke up in the morning with those lines in my head and I swear that the lines of the, the text on the wall did not change from the dream. 
which is probably the strangest thing about this entire experience. Yeah, because <laughs> they make a kind of weird sense, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but then in the morning, you know, it's like sometimes you'll have a dream and it's just a dream. But in the morning, I had the character, the biologist, yeah. the expedition, and everything else in my head yeah. as well. And, and it was it's a just story. shaping that into yeah. The, so it's yeah. Sort of a gift from the yeah, and really, pretty much a gift. Uh, so. With the biologist, I I very much felt like we were on side, we were on her side. Yes. That, that book, mm-hmm. that was our viewpoint, mm-hmm. and then authority. Mm. With control, I suppose because he had those, he was mm. such a contained character and refused to kind of let himself out of <laughs> that containment, yes. was more difficult <laughs> to empathise with. Yes. And then you come to acceptance, and it's obviously that second person narration with yes. Gloria, mm-hmm. and I immediately felt a warmth mm-hmm. towards her, despite actually her being quite derided in the last book. Yes. I wonder which character you kind of warm towards most. I like being ambivalent about them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm ambivalent about control because I, I don't see him as a totally likable character no, me but at the same time I don't know that any of us would do any better in his situation mm-hmm. and with the constraints he has on him and the things that are working against him um, in fact there's a key point in acceptance where uh, you need to take note of Lowry's assistant's name in his secret headquarters mm-hmm. and check it against the name that appears in authority and you may have more sympathy for control after you do that but um, but I totally agree that he's the least sympathetic character of, of the ones that are in there mm-hmm. but I think that in getting more sympathy for the director, yeah. you lose a little bit of sympathy for the biologist because yeah. you learn more about her background. But I also think you understand why she was suitable for the expedition or why at least the director thought she was. Yeah. Um, but yes, I my favorite character might at the end of the day be, be the director. Yeah. Um. yeah. Um, I've heard that the Southern Reach trilogy has been optioned by Paramount Pictures and I wanted to know because I went to a Donna Tartt talk mm. about, well, about six months ago now, yeah. and she was saying about how she feels that the uh, cinematic representation of her novels would be quite intrusive and that she would mm. feel like the novels lost something if that happened. Like, haven't, have you had any of your work filmed? And if, if, if these films go ahead, how do you think you'll f- feel about them? Um, do you think it's a cinematic uh, well, oddly enough, I actually you? think that Donna Tartt's last novel might benefit from <laughs> being filmed. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's terrible to say. Um, I liked it, but I, anyway. Um, so, <coughs> well, the only other thing that's been filmed is there was an experimental film uh, that was very popular in Berlin but nowhere else uh, made of Shriek and Afterward, one of my other novels. And uh, the filmmaker wound up shooting a lot of like surreal cloud images and doing a narration over it because there wasn't a large budget. So... Um, anything will probably be an improvement over that, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the the fact of the matter is Scott Rudin um, uh, is the guy who actually is the producer on it, okay. and he's very good at uh, turning uh, novels into movies like he did No Country for Old Men, and so I feel a lot less of an obligation to mm. be involved. Um, I, I feel like also Annihilation is a first-person uh, narrative, obviously, and film is a third-person uh form and so it needs to be changed anyway like uh if i were doing the film <laughs> now that i've said i don't want to be involved i would probably start out with a scene with the with the biologist and her husband after he's come back but you don't know that yeah. and so you don't know anything strange right away yeah. and then towards the end of that scene you realize maybe with the the milk thing or whatever it is that you know he's standing by the refrigerator and there's just milk coming out or whatever but but you realize something's not right mm-hmm. and then cut away to a shot over the reeds coming towards the lighthouse and then veering over to base camp with mm-hmm. a narration that introduces you to the other characters mm-hmm. and then goes out from there. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could you could shoot it, but yeah. I probably wouldn't, re- I wouldn't 
keep any of the mystery of the husband um, until later in the movie. Do you, do you think you keep it in a three sort of volume format or maybe one film or? They're planning on doing three films, um, but of course that's dependent on um, on how the first one would do. Yeah. And I believe they're at the screenwriting process right awesome. now. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Exciting stuff. <laughs> um, should we look one more time for one yeah, more question? Yeah, we've probably got to wrap this up. But okay, well, yeah, should we do yeah. three or four minutes okay. left before I have to figure out. I think maybe. Yeah, 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 it's fine. Okay. These are very good questions, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, um, you seem uh, more than other writers, perhaps more like a a, ma a classic man of letters style writer. You've done all anthologies. You do lots of tweeting. You um, you write uh, author writing manuals, and mm -hmm. you and you're a fiction writer. And do you feel like you always intended to occupy that sort of role? And and why does that role appeal to you? I think what's what's strange to me is that when I started thinking about being a writer when I was about 10 or 11, um, I thought that's what writers did. <laughs> so to me, it was just like, you know, this is an expression of being a writer. I think that they have different challenges, like the novels and stories are most personal to me and most immersive, uh, but an anthology is like solving a really complex equation. It's a more mathematical mm. thing. You're because you're figuring out how to put different pieces together in a way that tells a coherent story that has resonance um, and that may have some very uh, advanced kind of thematic things going on in them. So that's a real challenge. Um, the nonfiction uh, comes very natural to me, like I can write nonfiction anytime. And so it's really great if I'm not working on fiction to just still be writing something. Um, and it's allowed me to express my admiration for um, a lot of the writers that I love, like one of the first long essays I did was on Angela Carter, who's okay. one of the, so, someone that my uh, high school creative writing teacher, she handed me the bloody chamber and said, you need to read this, and it kind of basically changed my life. So, um, you know, things like that. With things like the Wonder Book, yeah. um, and that, must, that must have been a lot of fun to, to create. Wonder Book, uh, yeah, the, the world's first fully illustrated <laughs> creative writing guide. And, and uh, it's because Abrams Image did so well with the Steampunk Bible, another coffee table hmm. book, they were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to do a creative writing book. And they're like, so do we. And of course, since they're a coffee table book publisher, they wanted to do it fully illustrated. And, and, and that was just an amazing opportunity. And uh, th that kind of thing is scary because basically you're jumping off a cliff. You're saying, yes, I'm agreeing to do this thing that has never been done before. Yeah that I don't necessarily know that I know how to do. <laughs> and so it was scary because there was a point about halfway through where I wasn't sure there was actually a book that was going to cohere because the other thing they did that was nuts is they just gave me a pile of money and said, go off, hire your own designer, write the whole thing, and just bring it to us camera ready, which, if you can imagine, yeah. doesn't happen very often, <laughs> publishing for good reason. Um, so <laughs> it must really trust you. Right. And then when I got the first draft back from the designer and he had decided to put the page numbers in a different place on every page because I thought that'd be funny, Hmm. Then it really sank in that, <laughs> <laughs> that I was all in on this. In the to take over the matter. So do you do you like doing a sort of book tours? And you're over here for the Edinburgh Book Festival and yeah. Longcon and all sorts of things. Yeah. Does it? Do you sort of take to it with verve or? I think if you're going to do it, you should take to it with verb, uh, even e verb, verb or verb, um, uh, verb of your choice. And uh, but <laughs> but uh, even if I get grouchy and, and complain to my wife every once in a while about it, um, which she's used to, so she just ignores it as she should. Um, but I actually am going to be on the road about four months out of the year this year, which is a little bit more than I'm used to. And, mm -hmm. and I do have to say that three books out in a row, what you don't realize at the beginning is the, the commitment that means. Uh, 
uh, in terms of the publicity and everything else. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful there's been so much attention for the books, but I have, have had to be very careful about having some personal time, having some time when I'm not on. Um, and so I've, I've been very meticulous about pre-planning to the point of distraction for some people, but that's because then I can relax into it and also know exactly when I can be down and have some time to, to just write or something. But uh, overall, it's been amazing. I've been traveling all over the world and all over the U.S. And when I go back to the U.S., I'm doing an event with a live owl in <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> so how cool is that? I mean, I wouldn't give that up for anything. A so. live owl? How come? Um, because the Academy of Natural uh, Sciences is, is in Philly, and, and they have an association with the venue that we're doing it. And so they suggested a live owl because of the owl and acceptance. But they also wanted to bring in a rabbit because of uh, authority. I said, no, because the rabbit will be, unless you sedate that rabbit mm. so heavily God. that it doesn't know where it is, it's going to be terrified even in a cage. So please, please don't do that. <laughs> end reading with an owl swooping on a rabbit. Right, and I, I had in my head these all these like PR nightmare scenarios in which this went horribly wrong. And at least with just one creature there, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it kind of you know makes it less possible that the whole thing will devolve into some kind of circus free-for-all. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> well, Jeff, thanks so much yeah. for talking to us on the podcast and oh. wish you the best of luck with the, the tour and, and your books. Oh, thank, uh, thanks so much for, for publishing them. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> hope that was all right. Thank you.